0: I hope what you learned from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. If you are new to Suncast, welcome and thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending us your ears and the only non renewable resource you've got, and that is your time. Today's clean energy entrepreneur is in a slightly different adjacent category but bear with me you will understand why i invited matt Hyder, ceo of nautilus labs to the show you see prior to nautilus matt built sales and account management systems at software startups that have grown to be unicorns he worked in global software engineering for companies like ibm on their watson team he is well-traveled and well-spoken, and he's also one of the Forbes Next 1000, the list of ambitious and inspiring leaders, redefining what it means to run business and create change that matters. Today, I hope that you're inspired by the story that Matt tells and and weaves, the narrative that he brings around how the global shipping industry is woefully entrenched in a centuries-old business model that dramatically needs to be overhauled and updated. As you'll hear, today's shipping ports are pollution hotspots, bottlenecks in local ports, particularly our own United States ports like Long Beach and LA, where over hundreds of tons of smog are emitted per day are causing a headache for regulators around shipping ports here and abroad. And it could be different. You see the industry of shipping itself is responsible for 3% of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. And stands to grow significantly by 2050, if left unchecked. Who among you have not felt the pinch this year of the shipping industry and the constraints and the rising prices on your solar or energy storage or even general construction or rehab home remodeling projects? Yes, I see all your hands raised. Stick around. You're going to want to listen to the rest of this conversation today. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll subscribe to Suncast because that is how you will ensure that you don't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this, deep dives with energy and climate founders on the front lines, taking climate action and telling their story. We tell their story here on Suncast. We've done it over 500 times. You can see more of them, not only in your podcast feed, but over at mysuncast.com. It's where you can also Find the contacts and details around all the different ways that we've researched them and shared their story. I hope that you'll check that out. But for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. If you follow me on social media, you're aware of my rants at times about our industry needing to address more than just how we're offsetting carbon or how we are transitioning the grid away from fossil fuels from a generation perspective. Because as a technology-centric industry, we rely on one other industry more than all others combined, and that is shipping. If you've been trying to buy solar panels for the last 18 months, I promise this has been a pain in your corporate arse. And if you're unaware of it, you'll still want to pay attention to today's episode because I've brought in somebody who is a veritable shipping expert, and we're going to talk about how we should all be paying more attention to the shipping industry and why addressing problems in the shipping industry really does directly relate to our goal of deploying more solar panels and energy storage around the world, and notably here at home in the United States. Without further ado, I'd like to bring on the CEO of Nautilus Labs, Matt Hyder Matt, glad to have you on the show.
1: Great to be here, Nico. Really, really appreciate the opportunity.
0: I want to thank again the folks over, our friends over at Antenna Group who always bring super interesting folks into my purview. I remember you and I connecting at a trade show or a conference rather in New York City. And it was the first time in my life that somebody had in two or three minutes sort of explained the global problem with shipping. I want to give you that opportunity here and then we'll kind of go back into more of your backstory and unpack kind of how you got into the the role that you're in today. But could you just give me that that meta question that you're trying to address?
1: Totally. And and I think it starts with global warming, right? And anthropogenic greenhouse gases and ocean shipping accounts for three percent of those. So of all the greenhouse gases put out by humankind, 3% come from ocean shipping. That's tantamount to $150 billion of fuel consumption every year because. 90% of all goods are transit on ships. So it's it's the backbone of global trade. It consumes a massive amount of fuel, and it puts out a lot of emissions. And what you might assume as someone shoreside who's never spent a lot of time thinking about ocean shipping is that it's an advanced form of trade, right? It's more like avionics, where there's lots of data flowing and real-time visibility, and, and ETA is managed on the fly. And when you dig in and look at the problem set, ocean shipping really runs in a much more historically-oriented way on very little data uh, informing operational decisions day-to-day and as a market around the, sh- the trading of ships, the chartering of ships, one that is based still today on manually collected data with systems that persist from generations ago. So it's it's a part of the supply chain that is so essential but requires a lot of transformation.
0: I remember asking you, well, what do you mean by manually collected data? Because my brain doesn't compute this term right now.
1: So the thing is called actually... A noon report, the, the report that is the foundation of most all decision-making processes. Is this like somebody la- whose last name was noon? It's like noon as, as the sun is directly overhead. That's when you take the report once per day. And it comes from the pre-industrial era, right? When you didn't have electronics on board, you didn't have clocks, but you knew what time of day it was because the sun was directly overhead. And so every day when that occurred, you took your noon report and at the end of the voyage, that set of values was the history of the voyage. And you fast forward to, to 2022, it's a bit more advanced where folks on board are more akin to a meter reader and they're going around the vessel looking at gauges and making computations on paper and translating that into an email and sending it back to shore. But it's, it still is that, right? Manually collected, manually tabulated, and manually reported. And because of that, it's lagging. It's not super comprehensive. And it's often inaccurate.
0: So in a world where on land, we have sensors virtually everywhere, variable frequency (laughs) drives have sensors, light switches have sensors, any industrial complex, all the way down to your apartment and my home have sensors to turn the lights on and off and to tell us, I can know when my garage opened for the last three years. And we haven't adapted any of that to our seafaring friends.
1: Is really just in the early stages of that evolution, I would say. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were talking five, six years ago when we got started at Nautilus. It was even less true then Mm. than it is today, but we're we're starting to see increased adoption of high frequency data and and data transmission. I would say from an industry perspective, there are a couple things, right? Vessels are often out at sea. And so, you know, historically, particularly installing, maintaining sensors was an additional lift. And if it wasn't really needed, if it wasn't a part of the priority set for companies, they weren't going to bother doing it.
0: Heard that before. And then you
1: have other challenges around like data connectivity too. You know, ships are out at sea You know, they're basically the way that we kind of describe it sometimes and and actually a thing that might resonate well with your audience is think about as being a power plant at sea. Right. It's kind of out there floating, generating all this power that provides propulsion and maybe helps to maintain the cargo on board. But if there's no internet connection because there's no satellite coverage, uh, particularly in the older era, it just kind of needs to do what it's going to do and and operate successfully to get to the next port. And the idea of, of optimizing along the way was not really a real time consideration.
0: Right. I mean, ships in many very concrete ways are microgrids. They're floating microgrids, right? It's where a lot of the microgrid technology that we use today was originally conceived. It's where small hmm. modular nuclear reactors were created for submarines, right? Yeah. So not lost on us there. I want to uh, pause for a minute. We'll come back to the what I find actually riveting. I never thought I'd find like learning about how shipping works riveting. But the way that you presented is compelling. But I want to sort of pause and, and come back to 30,000 feet a minute and learn a little bit more about you, Matt. Could you give me some insight into sort of your background from, and even from an early age to the extent that your intellectual curiosity was peaked to like, what kind of, what was that? What was your home environment like that would have suggested at some point you might become a tech CEO?
1: When I think back to when I was a little kid and I, it's become something where I've realized how hackneyed it is, is like a trope, like as I'm older, but I was really entrepreneurial at a young age, right? I would want to do the lemonade stand oh. and I wanted to you know, trade my baseball cards. And when I was like really young, like five, maybe six years old, I created a bunch of GI Joe profiles for the, for like the action figures and sent them to Hasbro in Rhode Island. It was like, Hey, I want you to make these GI Joe characters. And, and I think there's a really good storyline here. And so there were all these things that I was doing at a really young age where it was really, my, my parents were supportive. My mom encouraged that sort of creativity and, and, and I just was, was excited about things where I, I you know, ultimately earning, earning a dollar was interesting, but it was more so probably the creative pursuit and like the, the winning at doing something that, that really drove me. And so I would say my earliest days is probably as those more at home lessons around, Hey, it's a safe space to go off and try something and try to create something new and, and push the boundaries and don't limit yourself to think that. You know, you're just some kid. You can't possibly think up an interesting G.I. Joe character. Go off and do it and and see. I remember we got like a letter back from the company. Some executive there was like, thank you, Matthew, for submitting this and blah, blah, blah. And it was just like uh, those were formative opportunities for me. And it really, really did build on that over the course of time. And it was always there at my core.
0: That's fascinating. I think the closest I ever got to a letter like that was Michael J. Fox writing me back, uh, for, for me th- thanking him for, you know, making back to the future or something like that. <laughs> I will say Alex P. Keaton is probably one
1: of the reasons why I was such an entrepreneur. You know, that was also a big part of my, my childhood, family really ties, to the Reaganomics of it. Yeah. It probably also drove me in that direction.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, you know, you didn't all end up becoming an intern or an employee at Hasbro. In fact, your work took you through a slightly different route. You know, I see that you spent some time in the financial markets and then in IBM as a sales leader. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your professional journey that ultimately brought you to the realization that you wanted something more entrepreneurial and and sort of startup leader type.
1: Yeah, it, it was, I would say, pretty nonlinear in that sense. You know, when I... When I went to school, undergrad, I kind of wanted to go off and change the world and do the big thing. And and so what, what I did is I went to D.C. and I majored in political science, and I thought like that was going to be the path there. And after spending a few years in D.C., you know, you kind of learn what that game is really all about. And it, it certainly took me in that other direction of going off down business track and getting into financial services, commercial real estate. And, you know, again, built an early career resume that was fine and I was happy with, but wasn't really getting me where I wanted to go. So I went back to to get my MBA. And I think in business school, I learned far more, I would say, as a graduate student than I did as an undergraduate in academic contexts. I think as an undergraduate, I learned things about leadership and independence and how to be an adult. And I think that was really where I focused a lot of my time and effort. When I got to business school, I actually learned more about Business and sustainable business models and the way that information technology was transforming the way that business worked. And it really helped me pivot my career in a sense and recalibrate towards technology. And that's when I got engaged at IBM. And I can go, I can go deeper on that experience, but there, it really was kind of a robust few years that I spent there, learned a lot about myself and about business. And that's actually where I got the bug to go off and do things that are more entrepreneurial.
0: Yeah. I would like to hear more about, like, I, th- I feel like, IBM is such a huge and iconic company that it's easy for folks to probably compartmentalize what you must have been doing at IBM and there are you know a thousand plus different types of jobs you could have at a big company like IBM Could you contextualize a bit where you found yourself as uh, I'm going to guess a late 20s professional with an MBA trying to think about a career path and and now you're working at like old blue one of the one of the most tried and true corporate opportunities you could get
1: It was so interesting for for a few reasons. So one is I was working at IBM, but I was living in San Francisco. So I was working at, you know, the most fuddy duddy, old fashioned, you know, old line technology company that exists at least perceptually, in your in-market in 2010, 2011, 2012 in San Francisco when startups are blazing, Facebook is going public, LinkedIn is doing great, all these companies are coming up. So that contrast was always super interesting. I was actually in a a place where I learned a lot my first couple of years at IBM. I was covering a really big account, a big four bank that's in San Francisco, and I was a relationship manager there between IBM and the bank. And, you know, it was a huge relationship. The year that I joined, it was, you know, $400 million worth of revenue or something along those lines, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, enough revenue that a company could go public on. And that was the size of the relationship between these two firms. And- You know, I would say it was a really good environment to learn about technology, information technology, application development, but it was really hard to know if I was doing well, to understand what I even needed to do, be successful, and have a lot of, you know, autonomy over outcomes. I was part of this big account team, this big slow-moving relationship, and there was no, you know, ability to kind of get in, break things, move quickly, and, and get stuff done. It felt very bureaucratic, and... It was actually a couple key conversations that I had there that helped me to recalibrate inside of IBM. To your question, uh, my first managing director there is a guy by the name of Al, super influential for me, really talked about, you know, the the way you should think about business in a way that that made sense to me and gave me a lot of confidence I could succeed. But, you know, also it was like, Maybe you don't need to be on this team to be successful. Maybe you need to need a different type of experience. And then, same conversation with with my with my third manager there on that team was really around like where I was in my career and what I needed to be engaged. And that led me down this track of focusing in on Watson Technologies at IBM and really learning about advanced analytics and machine learning, data science, and going deep on a domain. And that was a much more dynamic, healthier place for me inside of, to your point, that really big company where you can do a million different things. You really have to navigate your 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 place to a space where you're super excited and, and, and engaged as part of that.
0: For folks who might be unfamiliar, my understanding of Watson is that it helps organizations think about future outcomes, uh, leverages obviously like the Watson computer as a framework or, and as a technology to automate processes and even down to like op- optimizing employee time, things like that, what I want for folks to begin to understand is the pattern matching that we do in our early career, our ability to add on additional tools in our toolkit and the skill sets that you learned do point at some and twenty twenty is hindsight is twenty twenty always right they point to the kind of complementary skill set that you built that allowed you then to take on. Uh, your next adventure, which was a company that would become uh, a unicorn, Andela. At what point at IBM did it become clear to you that you really needed to move on to something more nimble? And and you're in San Francisco, of course. So talk talk about the Andela experience for a moment.
1: Yeah, it was it was really interesting. So I you know moved into that that role, focused in on on tech that was really exciting, and then that was like a immediate, like a, like, uh, it's too long a period of time for it to equate to like a sugar high, but it was like, it was like, it was, Ooh, exciting. Good. And it, it got some traction, moved quick and and had really good outcomes. And then, you know, I was in my early thirties and I was kind of looking out at the future and I had this, I had a really good executive sponsor there who I really admired. And there was, you know, this sort of five, 10 year growth plan to my career there that was, you know, certainly compelling inside of the IBM world, but, I was like 32, 33 and looking around as myself, like, there's gotta be more to life than that for me. You know, I didn't have family, didn't have a partner to have kids. And, you know, I really want more meaning and more purpose to come from my work. And it was around that time that I started looking for opportunities. I was actually looking in more of the machine learning data science space. Cause I was like, this technology is going to, to your pattern matching point. It's going to take over everything. And just through, again, through a friend, through an IBM friend from San Francisco, got connected to an entrepreneur in New York by name of Jeremy, who had just raised a seed fund for his startup, Andela. And, you know, the premise of the company really spoke to me on, on a super visceral level. It was that idea that brilliance is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And so, you know, connecting brilliant people all around the world with with, with jobs was really w- where we started. And it just was something that I was super excited about. And they were just starting to hire a sales team after raising their seed. And so gotten a conversation there again, you know, that, that conversation took about five months, I would say, but from when we first had our point of contact to when I actually started there, but learn more about the business, really develop conviction that like, yes, there is so much talent all around the world. We started in sub-Saharan Africa, in Nigeria. And so we had an office in Lagos and a team in New York and just Really became convinced that certainly remote work was a part of the future, and uh, that distributed software development was already happening. And signed on and and really made the big leap in life. That was probably the biggest, most dramatic leap that I made in my career was to get rid of my car, get rid of my apartment, tune, change coasts uh, and dive in on something that you know where there wasn't even we didn't even have the WeWork space yet in New York. It was really super early days there yeah. in, in Manhattan.
0: And you were the you were the first season ever experienced sales hire, right? And then came in to help Correct. Jeremy build out. Uh, build out the sales team. How do you compare the experience then jumping into a virtually unstructured world where IBM is a totally structured world? There's a number of folks who right now are considering, like, how do I jump into this solar solar startup or this uh, energy source startup when I've been working at this big utility, right? Like, what advice might you give those folks through your experience?
1: You know, there's a little bit of nuance in terms of how you do it. What I what I saw as you know sort of that gave me confidence in that firm, particularly, was you know the team that we, we'd be working with, right? Like really talented people from a diverse set of backgrounds, who all kind of you could see how the pieces fit together and would lead to success. So I would say that team that you're that you're going to market with, whether you know it's the first person you're working with or the first ten people you're working with, I think like that is critical. Also, you know, in terms of the network they had and and support they had, and, and the investors who were early in on on the business model, gave me some confidence that like what I was seeing from from like a market potential perspective some other pretty sharp people were were paying attention to and then ultimately i think what it was for me was really much a bet on myself a bet that yeah it's going to be ambiguous yeah it's going to be uncertain yeah it's going to be somewhat painful but this thing should exist in the world like this like it was probably like that sort of like missionary style conviction of like this has to exist. This, this is going to be a thing. This should be a thing. And if I go, I can help to make it a thing. Right. Um, I think it was that level of sort of just personal conviction that the thing had to happen and it, and, and Dell needed, needed to be what it would become. And that was the thing that I, I couldn't put down.
0: You've now gotten your MBA. You have worked for one of the most well healed companies in the world with clients that are also... <laughs> top four in their industry. Now you've successfully grown uh, a startup. What itch had you not scratched? The question I usually ask is, what career path did you not go down i I always thought you would? And while that's interesting, I'm curious that sort of where you're thinking is around 2017 when you decided to make a change from what had become a unicorn to go back and down into the trenches and the dirt to build something. Again, I, I want to understand more about kind of the the psychology of Matt Hyder in that decision.
1: So there, there were probably a few factors that that tied to that and that that consideration. You know, I, first off, just to know, Andela was not yet a unicorn. They became a unicorn last year, so they were on they were on the trajectory and doing doing. I mean, doing absolutely amazing things. It got into basically Series C by that point in time, but you know, they were still on a, on a pretty good growth track that took some time.
0: Well, let me ask you a question: If you had known they were going to be a unicorn by 2021 would you have left left in 2017
1: totally yeah oh yeah i mean i I bought i I bought my shares so i definitely i'm a proud shareholder and i i believe very much in the organization the mission and the team there and so it wasn't really a sense that uh, it wouldn't be successful it was more so a doubling down on that bet on myself i think when i joined indella you know, it was even though it was early stage, it was a little further along than, or a lot further along, I should say, than than uh, Nautilus was uh, when 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 I got involved with it. You know, we had customers, and we had revenue, and we had growth, and we had a, a big, growing team, uh, and really kind of a, a clear roadmap to getting to those you know future funding rounds, and, and a pretty clear resolution to a problem statement and a pain point for a lot of firms. And so, while it was super early. You know, it was it was not I wasn't quite on like a founding team um, there. It didn't didn't feel like that. And I think that when you go back earlier stage, the two things that you get are an opportunity to kind of take those lessons that you've learned and helping to build through early stage from C to to pre-Series C. um, And then you also get the opportunity to have. The, the position of more of a founder inside of an organization. And that's true both from a long-term financial incentive where you, you actually get more equity stake inside of the business, which is really, it has always been important to me and was important to me in making that transition. Um it's also, you know, gives you the opportunity to build more foundationally and, and really maintain that over the course of time. The other thing that's really interesting and I probably something to reflect on or to consider is, the biggest difference between those two settings at its core is one thing was building technology and the other one was delivering services. And I think there was still that if you ask me about which itch wasn't scratched, it was ultimately building the interesting tech that wasn't a part of it, right? There wasn't the machine learning. There wasn't the data science. There wasn't the things that had really gotten me excited at IBM. It wasn't part of, of the model or what we were delivering at Andela at that time. And so that was really important to me was in making a move that there was super interesting foundational technology that we we're building that was going to have those really big outcomes over the course of time.
0: Was there at that time a sense of... As well, you want to build something leveraging the background that you have and, and the the I mean you worked from the Watson Foundation, for goodness sake, I have core insight on how that industry is growing. But I wonder, because most listeners are thinking about their core business as their offering to the future generations of what we tried to do to address climate change. Was there any of that? And no judgment on my part if there wasn't, but was there any of that part of your evaluation of like, I really want to do something that's different. And I can't really see how a competitor to other global agencies for talent is going to address climate change other than helping those people get into the right jobs, which is, which is valid. Like, Was there any of that? It's funny
1: because the mission of Indela resonated with me on such a personal level, right? I was friends with The engineers had traveled multiple times to, to Nigeria and then to Kenya and really built such such deep connections and really was inspired by the individuals that that we were connecting with work where it's hard for me to say that the mission of Nautilus transcended that or exceeded that or filled in a gap that was missing. I would say, if anything, it would have been impossible for me to pick up something and to get engaged on a new problem where the mission didn't play an equally strong motivation in terms of what I was doing. Like I, you know, I, you know, when I was considering new opportunities, I looked at health tech startups and MarTech startups and FinTech startups, you know, you name the anything tech, uh, there are all the opportunities in the world uh, in New York around these different types of domains. And Every time I would come back to like, but do I care? Do I care about the outcome that we're building towards? Do I care about the application of this technology? Does it mean anything to me on a personal level? And to your question, that's really where Nautilus was, you know, the problem set was so compelling because I I do believe into my core that climate change is the most intractable problem that we have to solve. And it's one where if we really deploy people and technology and capital, we can actually do something and change it. And we have to, and so you know that really was what made it like the most interesting thing to pursue was that it was actually an opportunity to to, to align myself with a mission that that really meant something to me again.
0: If you could speak on behalf of, uh, and now having worked with them for a number of years now, in concert with the founders of Nautilus who brought you in as the real, as the as the CEO to take the vision forward, what do you think they saw in? You speak from a perspective of the models, the management tools, the experience that they hired on for you as a CEO. That you can, in retrospect, look back and say, okay, these things I did at IBM, these things I did at Andela, they prepared me to be the kind of CEO that this company needed. Could you talk
1: to that? If I go back in the Wayback Machine and think about it, when we first started talking, you know, Nautilus was two people and a massive problem statement, and a little bit of capital, right? That's that's what existed. And I think when you're a founding team, you have to be self-aware of the strengths and weaknesses that you have and know where the gaps are because you got some really big problems to solve and you need the right people around the table to figure it out. And I think when I think about the constituency of the first three of us, four of us who were here, you know, we had a really passionate, energetic business co-founder who hadn't... Built anything yet, but really was the driving, motivating force behind pulling people to the problem set. And we had a super deeply experienced technical co-founder who had never built anything from scratch before, but really, you know, wanted to and was was convicted around trying to help to solve the problem. There was there was no one who could close off that gap around the market, right? Like how do we go to market? What do we build? How do we build it? How do we get traction? How does that grow revenue? And how do we actually build the metrics and the systems that help to get us to, uh, you know, larger fundraising rounds and building bigger teams and actually solving the problem uh, at greater scale over the course of time. And so my perspective is, you know, as as sort of the third person in the room is that that was the gap that existed. That was how I got introduced. to The problem was like, Hey, this industry needs help and it's so far behind and we can build a solution that's going to solve those challenges. But how do we actually break into a really difficult old-fashioned global market what do we pro- productize and how do we get it out into the hands of users was was really the question that went unsolved and I think between my you know prior experience doing solving kind of go to market challenges and, and building teams to do that I think that was the the big thing that I brought to bear uh, you know for for leadership team and then ultimately for the board as well uh, in terms of becoming CEO.
0: Hey, family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast, moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations, our community involved in conversations as varied as Powering Australia, to Green Hydrogen, to Crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus where to party at channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hex uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. If we think about it from like EOS perspective, there's the visionary and the implementer, the two kind of things that you need for rocket fuel, as Gina, what Gina Wickman says. However, the skill that I heard you say they lacked was this fundamental ability to couple their ideas with market need, right? This is a really classic, especially tech valley of death that they come up with a great idea, but they have no idea how to even find the right prospect for it. And you- having been the top salesperson for the western region of ID, IBM on the Watson team and also having built the sales team for what would become the biggest you know, one of the biggest uh competitive uh freelance markets in the world for high paid talent had exactly that skill set of being able to filter the noise and say let's find market product market fit so the question i have for you is what was the first thing that you did to try and attempt to solve that product market fit how did you come in knowing virtually nothing about the shipping industry and decide as the new CEO where to focus your attention?
1: One story is very practical and is actually answering the question that you're asking. There's also just one anecdote that I would take you through, because actually it's it's good context for anybody who's thinking about doing entrepreneurial stuff. So the thing that I thought that we were doing when we started Nautilus and that we thought that we were doing was building autonomous ships. That was the thing that got me so energized around how we would actually solve this challenge was you look at autonomy and all these other domains, and doesn't it just make sense that ships should also be autonomous, that that's the way that you're going to actually reduce fuel consumption. And on day three of working at Nautilus, I was at the second annual autonomous ship symposium in Amsterdam. It's the second annual. So like that tells you where autonomy was in the conversation in ocean shipping. I'm sitting there listening to all these people talk about how autonomy is not going to happen for 10, 20 years. And so for me, it was it was a a really early aha moment. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, like maybe we'll still get to autonomy someday. But like that can't be the thing that we start with. There's no way the adoption curve is going to be fast enough. And so practically what happened is we came back to New York and I actually started on this exercise of building a brand map with the team. And we we sat down and it was an exercise we'd gone through at Indela. So I learned it there. It was a really simple way to say, hey, this is your value prop in the world. Here are the pain points that you solve. Here are your proof points for how you solve those pain points. And it's a way for us to actually talk about a solution that we haven't built yet to problems that we know exist and see and calibrate around are we actually speaking to the pain of the users, and are we actually getting to a place where we can actually help them with solve their problems and then ultimately build a business? And so it might seem so backwards, uh, you know, if if you start from a very tech-centric view of it, but we actually really started the go-to-market plan with positioning of, hey, we know these are pain points, we know generally this is how we wanna solve them technologically, and here's how we can validate that we can get there with a solution. And then bringing that out to market and building, you know, sales collateral in and pres- and a presentation deck around that. We, we demoed with uh, an Adobe file, like a click, like a, a pre-formulated click screen of a UI that didn't exist yet. And we really went out there and market and sold that, that these are the pain points. Here's where you're as a business losing money and inefficient because of a lack of insight about your operations. And here's how Nautilus can be a partner for you in developing, you know, a solution that meets your needs and, and really starting there from that type of positioning exercise.
0: Where did you get the, the primary research to go into that brand sprint, build a brand map idea, ideation of like the solve problems you could help solve. Because so what I hear you saying is then you went out and effectively interviewed pseudo or prospective customers to say, are we on the right track?
1: It was really the feedback loop from from those meetings. So we would use this messaging in outreach. So we would reach out to say, uh, we did a lot of work with actually local shipping companies in New York to start. Our industry is mostly globally distributed and a lot of our team these days is outside the US. But back then it was just three or four of us in New York. And so what we started with was, going out to the different businesses and saying hey look let's talk about your challenges let's talk about what we can do with high frequency data to help solve some of those issues our very first product was actually just a data transmission device it was called an auto logger where it was advice that went on the board and could transmit high frequency data back to shore and that's really the first thing that we we offered to solve this sort of lack of continuous operational insight challenge that businesses had and everyone's like okay yeah this this probably makes sense oh it like what you saw a lot of times in those early meetings was the gears turning on the buyer's head of like, oh, if I had this, could I then do X or could I do Y or could you give me insight into this component of our operations? And it was really those early feedback loops that helped us understand that, like, yes, there is a pain here. People acknowledge that there's inefficiency and also that that there, there can be a solution to it if you have better data and more information. And I would say our, our first customers, the first folks who paid us revenue and signed on, and, you know, whether it was with autologger or data, they already had short side, got data into our platform. They all generally bought into that value prop of, yes, there's this whole suite of inefficiencies that exist where we don't have the insight that we would want. And here's how we we can potentially get there as a solution. They saw themselves as partners in that development cycle.
0: Where do you feel like you learned the skills to do that level of customer exploration? Because that's something that I would assure probably those found the co founders of the team had not honed or developed the ability to actually go with what felt to the hearer as like our idea and our plan for you, but it's really exploratory in nature.
1: I think that part of it is a nascent, not nascent, it more of like an intrinsic intellectual curiosity that it, like exists in me. Like I, I I don't think it's about me uniquely, but as a as a pure, as a person, a trait that I have is certainly that I always want to learn more. I ask questions. I'm curious about the way things work, how people think about things to answer the question more specifically two two pieces of experience that fit into that. When I started my career, you know, s- sort of was in environments where I was very junior, but I was out on the front lines, and I'd be able to sort of ask questions, get information, use that to inform proposals we might build or other types of offers we might bring to to a client. And then at IBM, you know, we went through this whole six month training program before we were ever out in the field. And that program, which is a great investment in, in human capital on IBM's behalf, and I, I'm grateful to have had it, was really about that. How do you do data driven discovery? inside of a meeting environment to understand problems so you can identify how to map back our really broad, complex, diverse solution set to the pain point that you're hearing in that process. And so learning about discovery in that way and then going out and applying it in a sales context to IBM and then at Andela was really where I, I built the chops. And you know, I think at IBM, it was, it was more of a homogenous environment that you would go into. You were largely talking to the same folks in the C-suite, a lot of folks in the IT organization. So very homogenous problem set in, in a lot of ways, though, though broad. At Andela, it was interesting because we were talking to so many startups. So you'd get on the phone with a CTO or a chief product officer, and you talked about what they're building and why and what, how the product's built and how they structure their product teams. And so you really had to be uncomfortable with me as a non-technologist comfortable talking to these technical buyers about what their pain points are and then bringing a business solution back to them. And ocean shipping is very much the same where a lot of the problem sets are technical from an expertise perspective. It's very specific how you optimize a bulk ship versus a gas carrier. And you have to be comfortable as someone coming from outside the industry to be feel confident asking questions, doing discovery and exploration, and, and also digging in on, on how you can get to value quickly, even though there's so much ambiguity all around you.
0: I feel like every single listener is like nodding their head going, and they're like, they're doing exactly what I want them to do, which is take your life lessons and applying them to their exact pain right now. Because what you just described, I wish for, like, I wish for myself and for everybody who is in a role of trying to find product market fit for their clients or for themselves that they would have had access to this data-driven discovery process that you got access to at IBM, right? It's an unfair advantage that, your co-founder the co-founders that hired you in at Nautilus get to take advantage of right it's an unfair advantage that you internalized it's not even it's not even something that they would have been able to verbalize but they could sense from you i suspect just having worked with a number of co-founders who are trying to find a- exactly that i have to ask though because you said as a non-technical person and obviously like your core skill is not being a developer uh, building a tech platform yet you're the CEO of a tech platform. Two questions that I have for you, and, and I hope that they sort of tie back. And I don't know the answer to this, but are you now a client of Andela? We
1: have been a client of Andela uh, and we went through a restructuring around COVID era and then we we were no longer a client of Andela. We have not started working with Andela again.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, how do you build a tech company if you're not a technical founder or a coder and you've got to build this platform, right? Like you've got, you need you need human capital and human talent. <laughs>
1: You do. You do. Yeah. We've, we've, we've worked with them and it's been a good experience, but we did, uh,
0: you know, this is not a commercial for Andela for anybody listening.
1: (laughs) Hey, it could be, if you need, if you need world-class engineers, uh, go to the Andela marketplace. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was the COVID era was, I'm sure a lot of folks listening to the podcast have gone through their own trials and tribulations and we had to go through a bit of restructuring when, when COVID came about.
0: Well, you did come out of the, the COVID lockdown, uh, firing on all cylinders in a way that Many of our tech peers did not. You announced in the spring a Series B around the time that you and I connected, I think of 34 million. Is that right? It's correct. Yeah. Tell me what those investors see in the work that you're doing that positions you as a harbinger of truth for an industry that has been in many ways locked in uh, ancient times and, and, and working off of noon reports. Tell me a bit more about why those investors believe in you.
1: If I'm going to put simply, it's market driven decarbonization at scale and the potential to do that via our business. If you think about what that means, uh, on the one hand, it's that we deliver on financial return for our buyer. They get an ROI on our software. They're happy with it. They grow with us. We've demonstrated that we have a really strong revenue growth path in the course of time. And then also at the same time. By doing that, we're delivering on CO2 reductions in the same way. The value that they're they're capturing is economic dollars and the value that we deliver to the world is CO2 reduction. And I think for the folks who who are involved in this round and, and likely, you know, most of our investors set moving forward, they care about both those things. Obviously, if it's just CO2 reduction, but you can't grow a business doing it. There's not a venture investor in the world who's going to put money behind it. So you have to have the market-driven return, but you also have to demonstrate that you can and are and do care about the emissions reduction side as well. That's the thesis of our business.
0: So, yeah. So let's couple that and bring that thesis forward for folks who maybe haven't stopped the recording and gone to check out the website, frustrated that I haven't asked you outright what your business model is. You have taken your understanding of what the market needs as a, and now you've moved away from autonomous shipping what is the product that ultimately you created that is dr- this market driven market driven decarbonization at scale how do you in some way qualify and even quantify that you're decarbonizing the shipping industry if you're not doing some some form of autonomous shipping what are you doing
1: i think the first thing to to realize and to consider is that you know, there is and will be a human in the loop on most of the decision making that happens inside of ocean shipping for another generation. Right. And that's really why, you know, if, the, if you want to consider why autonomy isn't a thing or isn't going to be a thing soon, it's really that reason that ultimately someone's going to be entrusted and empowered to make a decision. And what we have to focus on our business is getting that individual the right information at the right time with the right recommendation so they can then take an action that, that produces these types of outcomes and, and reduces emissions. In, in the course of our business, what we've really focused in on is kind of the broad concept of fleet optimization. So what are the decisions you make around your fleet of ships, at what points in time, and how can we help you capture economic value and, and reduce fuel consumption and reduce emissions? And the, the part of the platform where it's been most consequential, especially in the last few years, has been in this domain of voyage optimization. So, you know, you're running a ship, you're taking a certain route, you're traveling a certain speed, you're going to a certain port. How do you play with the factors around the voyage, around, you know, your speed and your route and your ETA to help to maximize the outcome from the voyage? And typically for most voyages, that means consuming the least amount of fuel that you need to meet your objective. And and that's how we demonstrate economic return and also the CO2 reductions.
0: What I sort of hear is, you know, recently Google Maps introduced this thing that was like the, C- the most CO2 efficient route hmm. for your car. And it seems like it's that for these fleets. How is it a platform? Because you keep saying platform. It seems to me like it is a software that someone would subscribe to, but I don't understand necessarily a platform has two sides. Tell me how it's a platform.
1: So the way in which we think about it as a platform, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question. I actually be curious for feedback on on the verbiage if it's if it still makes sense or if it doesn't. There, there's really two components that that help to address that question. So, in order to to do that solution, right? In order to solve what is the the most efficient thing to do with my ship at this point in time, you actually require a lot of information to be synthesized, processed, and and uh, and amalgamated for analysis to make that prediction about the future. So you have commercial information that comes from systems inside of a shipping business like an ERP. You have the machinery data that's flowing from the ship. You have your weather forecasts that come in from global climate models and, and, and weather companies. You have uh, you know, sort of the commercial factors around the voyage, which might be intrinsic to the owner of the ship or from the charter of the ship. And so there is this amalgamation inside of a data platform. That's really where the primary use of the word platform comes from. And we've thought about it over the course of time is really as a data platform on which you can build things like voyage optimization. To your point, though, about, about a platform and there being two sides, a big part of the work the last two, three years and a big part of the opportunity for us with voyage optimization for the market is really how different counterparties work together around data. So we've had this historical inefficiency in the market and a, and a great deal of the overconsumption comes from the fact that the person who's managing the speed or the route of the voyage only has access to noon data from the ship they don't actually have access to real reliable high frequency data and so by connecting those two sides of the market which historically are very siloed where the only information sharing is the noon report and actually empowering users on both sides with more information to take more efficient actions that's that's the other way i would say to your definition of how we're acting as more of a platform over time is really enabling people to share insight in one place that formerly didn't exist uh, without access to a tool like
0: ours. Do you aggregate data from different fleets and voyages such that it provides, and I imagine on some level you've begun to figure out or or leverage machine learning and AI as a part of this, but are you using data analysis in the sense that someone else who's subscribed to your service gets the benefit of the learning of the model from others that are subscribed to your service and and that effectively makes a two-sided platform?
1: That's core to to how voyage optimization can work. So if you think about it, it, we sometimes refer to this as metadata modeling internally, where we take we can take metadata about a ship and we use an algorithm that's trained on all of the data from all the ships to make predictions about a vessel where we don't have as much information. And, and yes, we're absolutely able to do it in that case, and to improve the training of models for any any given ship. So. In that sense, we, we we do leverage machine learning in that way. And it is helping make more precise predictions about more ships, whether they're fully on the platform or not with high frequency data. But we're, I would say the thing that we don't do is we don't like resell that information in any way. We don't market that data for any other purpose. It really is simply and, and basically for making the best possible prediction about any ship at any point in time.
0: I can see how in a few years' time, the answer you just gave will have modified or changed simply because of your the access to information. And I mean that you don't sell that data in any way. I could see a world where, like, we freely give our data away. In the example I gave you, with Waze, we freely give our data away. With Roku, we freely give our data away because we want the simplicity and efficiency of not having to go and pull in all these apps on our own, like, personal, uh, you know, uh, Raspberry Pi to tie to our non-smart television, right? Yeah. Like Roku made it easy for us. And that's why the founder is a multi-billionaire, right? Same is true in in just about every industry. Same is true for the Waze folks. They made it easy for me to see like where other drivers have signaled that a police officer is sitting. Like that's why Waze got popular, right? It was because I could use an app to know where police are, right? I don't need to use a radar scanner. And I can also use it now all of a sudden because I can see like Nissan was thinking about this, but and manufacturers thinking about this. The global shipping industry was thinking about this, but you are among the early companies to say, look, like we need, we need an app that allows us to see the data and reroute ships if we need to, based on congestion. And I mean, that's what I'm hearing from you.
1: It's where where it gets really exciting is really in that transformation of the relationship around the vessel. Cause that's really like, it's funny, you know, and it goes back to like the, how, how do you pivot and how do you roll with evolution over the course of time. Right. And we thought it was autonomy first and we figured out it was decision support second. And, and we've gone very far down that path. And then you run into these weird Hurdles based on just the sclerotic nature of the industry where user X can't get access to the insight that user Y has because of some contract that was written in the 1960s. And it's like it's this really outmoded form of commercial agreements and the way the commercial arrangements are made in the industry is Byzantine. And and there is a huge opportunity to transform that with data. And that's where I, that's certainly where I get super excited. That is the most exciting thing. Um, And I I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know if it's open data privacy, there's still privacy considerations there, but there is a foundational need for better information, better insight that is currently blocked by, you know, contracts that were literally negotiated over a cigarette and whiskey by someone sitting in a white tablecloth, Restaurant in London in 1968, and that still is what's determining the date of future businesses today, which is not
0: acceptable from my perspective. I feel like the mic drop moment in the interview right there. That's really good. (laughs) You know what I'm grateful for, as someone like you who I I tend to expound on an idea, and because I like to talk and I'm I have a, a a broad vocabulary, I'll come up with things and I'll say them, and I'm like I've never said it like that before. That was great. I'm glad we're recording this because. You now get to, if you've never said that before, you I've said it in a that way before. that, yeah, you said it in a way that felt to me like, wow, that was a moment, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, it's good. It's fun. I, this is, this is a blast. I think that, cause that is, I mean, you're, you hit the nail on the head and that is that scene right there. Imagine if every other market, you know, you, you, you talk about energy markets and censoring on shore. Think about if crypto, like crypto markets or any other finance market or, Everything else in the world that has been transformed with information, data and transparency, um, this this one is the last bastion of of markets that need to be transformed.
0: Matt, for being a relatively young entrepreneur, I feel like you've really been through the crucible on a number of different fronts. I'd love to know if there's any advice that you might have for fellow entrepreneurs that are in the throes of startup life and maybe they're a year or two or one step behind you. You know, anything that you would offer up?
1: It's a couple things. There, there's one is it's always hard in a certain sense, right? It never, it doesn't get easy. What gets hard about it changes over the course of time, and so I think that there's a level of acceptance and knowing that that's part of the challenge is that you're always going to be you know greeted with newer hard things to solve, and the things that were hard become easy, but the things that now you have to solve are are, are fresh. That's part of the journey, and you got to be really comfortable with sort of the ambiguity around that, but also the fact that that's just in the life cycle. And I think, you know, I've spent the last almost eight years now in, in technology businesses and high growth startups, and it's been a part of the journey ever, ever more. I think the other thing that I've learned, you know, and, you know, this is true of, in, of when I was at Indella, it's true at Nautilus, you know, from before we closed our seed to series A to series B, is you have to make space in your life for everything that matters. And the only thing that matters can't be the business that you're working on, because you have to have that full cup to pour into your business and you have to nurture those things that are outside of your business. I think it's really hard, particularly when it's super early or when you're super strapped or when it's it's most difficult to remember that the people that you care about, the people that you love, the people who are your friends, who have known you forever, the people who really mean something into your life matter just as much more than, than the work that you're doing. And that if you don't spend time nurturing those relationships, fostering them, making sure that you have this big, robust, healthy thing outside of your professional life, it makes it really hard to be your best self in your professional life. And I think that's been a thing that that's been a huge learning for me over the course of the last seven, eight years is really, you know, I'm super invested in my work. I pour myself into it. It means so much to me. I, I, so much of my identity does come from the thing that I do professionally. And yet the thing that's that's helped to nurture me along the way is really making sure that that those things are also a high priority in my life, that they are top priority. And that making sure that 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 the people that you care about, the people who are there for you in your ups and downs, that you're there for them in the same way. Uh, along the way.
0: I believe that readers are leaders. I'd love to know if you have any particular authors or books that have been instructional or transformational and that you therefore share out, out with others on a regular basis to help them along their path.
1: Yeah, it's, it's good. I, there's a couple, two, two points to make. One is, you know, as a, as a, as a reader, a thing that I'm voracious about is Current events, like I subscribe to. I mean, The Economist. If my mm-hmm. desert island book is actually The Economist, I would. I, if I could have The Economist nice. subscription on, on desert island, that would be the thing. Uh, and so, like, I subscribe to most you know major publications and really on uh, a daily basis, constantly trying to stay up to speed. That's like part of my, you know, it's the thing that makes me me. It's the thing that I care about. Uh, in terms of, of books, I actually there's two there's two sets of things that I would say, particularly for this audience. So one is if you're Thinking about starting something, if you've just started something, if you're building something, you know, Brad Feld's books around startup boards and, uh, and venture deals, really good, like prime reading. I think it was gifted to me. I've gifted it to folks who are in the same position. It helps you. It's not like it's gospel, but like it, he's someone who's got a lot of insight, who's helped to build tech stars, which has been highly successful in incubating businesses, and like really good insight in terms of like how you build and support you know venture businesses over the course of time. So I think that's super compelling.
0: Is the startup is venture deals or startup community way? Which which of those? Is I would say venture
1: deals and startup boards, particularly if uh, you're on boards. if you're on the executive team okay. or on a board, um, and if you're you're trying to raise, it's just a good you know tried and true, time tested advice. I think that's one of the weird things about being an entrepreneur and especially raising venture capital. There's not a lot of source materials to go read. Uh, you know, it's not like it's well, it's actually one of the things about Nautilus that's been super fascinating in our period of time growing is like, same thing is true about ocean shipping. You know, I can't go Wikipedia, how to optimize a voyage. You really have to like <laughs> get in the weeds and learn, and learn how to do it. Um and I think it's the same thing for venture investing where like, there's a few sources like, like like venture deals where you do get some really good learning and you kind of, can figure out what your North star is for, for fundraising. But a lot of it's, a lot of it's trial by fire too. And then I think there's other, you know, there's some management books that I think are really good. You know, like there, I think um, the mindset book by Carol Dweck, I think is, is yes. really good to keep in mind. Like growth mindset, I think is really a thing. And I think, you know, maybe there, maybe it's not the most intellectually challenging read, but like there's, there's a lot there to consider when you're building a team and you're leading a team crossing the chasm, uh, you know, really, really good one for if you're building products and thinking about product market fit and adoption, And what was really influential for me, too, was this uh, John McCain, uh, the John McCain book from like 2004 about courage. And there was a thing that always that always stuck with me about it. It's the idea that like courage is about how you take action when things are uncertain and chaotic and scary. It's not about it's not about like not being scared. It's about acknowledging like, hey, what's going on around you is truly chaotic and ambiguous and certain. But like courage is really being able to, to take action, motivate through it.
0: I love it. And that was his autobiography?
1: Yeah, I think it's Courage Matters. It actually wasn't an autobiography. It was more of like a reflection on on. Uh, but it was written by uh, him? Courage. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. At least his name was primary on it. I don't think sure. you, know, you never know something like that, how much they wrote it, but his voice is in it for sure.
0: Well, a couple of things stand out to me in the list. Uh, I've never had anybody recommend Brad Feld, despite the fact that I interviewed startup founders. And th- the founder of Techstars, Brad Feld, like – But I can see his influence on you philosophically as well. Like if if you haven't listened to it yet, anybody listening should go listen to Brad Feld's interview with Tim Ferriss. For me, it was one of the, one of those, it's one of the, in the canon, it should be uh, like top five listens for Tim Ferriss' acolytes. Because in it, he says, you gotta get to the place where you could take a month off and the company can still run and you could be gone for a month. And he does that routinely. He takes a month off, completely off the grid. No messages, no emails, nothing. A month month it's unfathomable for most people to take 24 hours let alone a week or in a month is like yeah, it's some other universe where you just don't care about your company but he's on the i mean he's on the other end there, there are lots of things to argue about like whether or not he really did that when he was kind of starting a lot of his his companies but
1: i would probably debate that yeah i don't think but like, i don't know how possible that is when you're when you're the three-person company but it's definitely exactly as a north star right as like a as a guiding yeah. light
0: makes sense yeah yeah and philosophically, like the ability yeah. to build a company that can give you that kind of freedom that that yeah. is running so well that you can, in fact, do that. Uh, I think, as you said, is the North Star. Uh, hey, Matt, I'm super grateful for the generosity that you've shown the Suncast community. If folks were so inclined, how do you like to be reached? Is there a place that you like to be found?
1: Well, our website, so you're interested more about Nautilus, is nautiluslabs.com, N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S. Yeah. Labs, dot yep. com And then my email is just Matt at Labs, com. So just ping me over, email if I'm on LinkedIn. Easy, easy to track down.
0: Got it. Well, let's in today, as we always do with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening, Matt Hyder, that maybe nobody else is tracking? And I can promise you see things that we aren't tracking, <laughs> given the nature of your business. What's in your crystal ball as we look out over the next three to five years and decarbonizing, uh, decarbonizing the grid and the ocean?
1: I actually think it comes back to what we talked about, right, which is that fundamental restructuring of the connective tissue of commerce, right? I think when people think about decarbonization, they think about efficiency, a lot of the thought and the brain power can go to the nuts and bolts in autonomous ships and and widgets that we can build and and the faster, more efficient power generation systems, these types of things, which all deserve thought and attention and need to be improved. And when I come back to ocean shipping, when I look at markets like ours, I see this huge opportunity to really renovate the way that the entire structure systematically works around ships and contracts and cargos so that we can get to a universe where just-in-time arrival is is feasible. Today, just-in-time arrival doesn't happen in ocean shipping. Ships speed up, go super fast, they slow down, stop, and they wait. And that is massively inefficient. It's all because of this really outdated commercial tissue that exists between companies, between stakeholders, between ports and ships and cargo interests. And that is fundamentally going to change. Data is going to be at the foundation of it, and it will really change the way that the global supply chain works over the course of time.
0: Matt Heider is the CEO of Nautilus Labs. It has been a real treasure trove of an interview where I feel like I've personally learned in ways that I don't typically get to. So thanks for stretching my understanding of the way we all are pushing forward in our own ways to decarbonize the, the the planet and make it safer for our children and our grandchildren. Thank you, Matt, for taking your time and joining us here on Suncast today. Thanks Hugo. To you. Pleasure. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation. And I am so really grateful for Matt Hyder's generosity. Thank you, Matt, for coming on the show. I learned so much about the shipping industry and about the choices we're making and more importantly about building a business that can influence the decision frameworks for how an industry can move forward how do you think this could be extrapolated into the energy sector into solar or energy storage or the grid transformation writ large i'm sure that you like me are going to connect with matt you can do so by going online to mysuncast.com clicking on the episodes tab find the show notes page for this episode where we've listed out his social media links, including his LinkedIn page and all the other resources that we found through researching for this episode, as well as shared by Matt, including the extensive list of books that you just heard. I hope that you'll tune in next week where we'll have another long form, insightful Clean Energy Revolution founder interview right here on Thursdays. And on Tuesdays, our deep dive into the tactical and practical ways to help take your business forward. Sometimes it's from our live events. Other times it is a dedicated episode around a specific topic with a subject matter expert to help you stay more informed. And I hope that you'll do one more thing, if I could ask. And that is take a moment, write in your podcast player and rate the podcast. Not in a podcast player and want to help out anyway, you can go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. It takes three minutes or less. And it really helps not just me feel great that I'm not speaking into the void, but also helps other people find the podcast the same way that you did. Thank you for that in advance. And finally, thanks again to our sponsors who help make this show free to you so that you can enjoy it on your walk, washing dishes, on your run, or in your commute to work, however it is that you enjoy podcasts. You can learn more about our sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that is also how you could learn ways that you could partner with us to reach thousands of Solar Warriors and Clean Tech champions twice a week, just like they have. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Kia, Solar Warrior!